This is called The Great Escape. This is our study of the book of Exodus. And today we're going to do a little bit of preface to, to help us remember what we talked about last week. Um, Egypt is a picture of the world and a picture of sin. Okay, So Pharaoh is going to be a picture of Satan. Israel is a picture of the individual believer. And Moses is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point, um, there's been now 400 years of silence where I've not heard God and a man. I've not been in communication. And last week in chapter 2, we witnessed the birth of Moses, his miraculous deliverance from death, from certain death, his acceptance as an adopted child into Pharaoh's house, his act of defiance against Egypt, his escape to Midian, and the life he established in that foreign land. As the chapter came to a close, we heard the cry of the Israelites go up to God and him respond with compassion as the stage was set for our message this morning, which is titled, Silence Broken. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for today, God. And uh, my desire, Lord, today is not to be heard. Uh, my desire, Lord, is to disappear. And that, Father, the words that I share not be the words that I would choose. But, God, please, God, help me to get out of the way. I don't, I don't want to interfere with what you have to show us. And uh, I would ask you, Lord, I know you've spoken to me, and I would pray and beg you now that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse number 1. It says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now understand that, notice that they're not his sheep. The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Okay? So it's not a coincidence here that we find Moses taking the role of a shepherd. Okay? There is a desperate, there's, a, there's an importance to this. He's been shepherding now for some 40 years. He probably does not understand the relevance of why it is he's been a shepherd, but there are some things that God's going to use, what he's learned in shepherding, that he's going to be using in the days to come. Now, what is the significance of a shepherd? In Psalm 23, 1, the Bible says this, The Lord, the psalmist said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a description of God as a shepherd. John 10, 14, Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and, are, and am known of mine. Consider another great leader, David. What was the role that God gave David in preparation for becoming a king? He was a shepherd. Shepherds, though they were the lowliest people on earth, they were considered to be on the level of slaves because they did such a dirty job. But guess what? They were exalted. They're exalted in heaven. They're exalted on earth. And who were the very first ones to meet the baby Jesus? Shepherds. Not by coincidence. In verse number two, it says, And the angel, which this word would translate messenger, this angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. So fires, understand, a fire in this kind of environment, this is an arid, hot, dry place. A fire is not an unusual thing by any stretch of imagination. So a burning bush is not something that's that unusual. But what's unusual about this bush is the fact that it says it's not consumed. Now, when you're at a fire, and these men, they would warm themselves by fire. They were very, 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 they were around fire all the time. When a fire burns, what does it do? It pops and it cracks, right? Because it's consuming what it's burning. But you notice here that it says here that it was not consumed. So this is a silent fire. As it burns, he walks upon it. And this is an unusual thing. So he recognizes this. Now, in the Hebrew word that's used for bush there, it actually tells us that it's a thorny bush. Now, can we think of the future where, why there's a relevance to thorns? And this may be a picture of Christ. I believe that this is Jesus himself speaking through this bush. Consider the fact that this says that it's, cons it's covered with fire, right? Jesus was the fire of sin, yet not consumed, right? It's a picture of Christ. Christ was enveloped in that sin, yet not consumed. Verse number three. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. 
He says, look, I got to investigate this. This is crazy, man. What's going on with this bush? It's not being consumed. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Now, notice that God does not speak to Moses until he has Moses' attention, right? Moses isn't really paying attention, but he says that he turns, and now he focuses attention upon this bush. And now when he's got full attention, he speaks to him. Many times you and I want to hear from God, but we don't give God our full attention. We expect God to come in and straighten us out and direct us. But bottom line is he's asking for us to give us his full attention. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. When you focus your attention on me, guess what? You will find me. The desire of God is for us to find him. It's to know him. Listen to Jesus in John 17, 3. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He says, and this is life eternal. Notice what he says here. This, this is life eternal. He said, this life that we look for, this one that's going to be in heaven, this, this time with God, this, this reverence, this relationship. He says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's not, heaven is not our eternal salvation. Our eternal life is not about the, it's not about where we're going to be. It's not about heaven. It's about the relationship that we can have with God on earth. Eternal life is the relationship. If we give him our full attention, we'll be amazed at the results. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, we know he says, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, right? Focused attention. In verse number five, and he said, draw not nigh hither, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. So the Lord gives us two things here in these directives. He tells them, first of all, stop approaching me. And second of all, take off your shoes, kid. Right? He's establishing a relationship with God. Now understand, in order to establish a relationship first with God, the first thing that it has, must have is reverence. We must have reverence for God. This is a relationship that's being reestablished after 400 years of silence. Moses has heard stories. He's heard about where he comes from, but he doesn't have a relationship with God, and his knowledge of who God is is, is pretty shaky. So God is working on him here. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of God's majesty and reverence and commands that it commands from people time and time again. The Lord is reestablishing his relationship here with God or with man, and it's going to understand that it has to be based upon this respect and this honor. This is a time of instruction for Moses. He's learning. Because bottom line is Moses has got to lead. He's got to be a shepherd. He's got to be one that's going to teach and model this behavior of reverence to God, to the people of God. Now, understand this reverence mindset. We have gotten to a culture where people don't really reverence God like they used to. People come to the house of God and they act way, they run around. The holy ground that he's talking about here, he's saying, look, Moses, I don't want you to bring the dirt of, that, of this world to me. Leave that dirt behind. Don't bring the garbage of the world into where I stand. And understand, this is holy ground. We need to reverence our church. It may have been an old bank, but guess what? It was God-ordained that this place would become a house of worship. It was God-ordained that this would be a place where people would get saved, that people would grow, where we would preach the Word of God, and where we give hope to people that are hopeless. And we've got to remember that. Let's reverence what God's given us, and let's bless Him and thank Him for it. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy fathers. Notice this patiently, how he lovingly explains this to Moses. He says, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look upon God. God is establishing his identity. 635 years earlier, he gave a promise to a man named Abraham. And he said, there's a covenant that I make with you, and I'm going to fulfill it. And see, God is a God of his word. It does not matter how long it is. And he's saying, look, the same one that you've heard stories about, Moses, it's me. It's me, son. And the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. He says, look, I've been watching. I've seen it all. I know everything that's taking place, and I've been waiting on them to finally come to the point where they're willing to call out to me. Notice that he says, I heard their cry in the midst of suffering, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of our suffering. Notice what he says here, for I know their sorrows. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us this prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, meaning he understands all about it. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Not only does God know our sorrows, not only does he know what we're going through, but personally, he cares. He knows what it feels like. Check this out, Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He feels our pain and carried our sorrows. He feels the weight of our sadness. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Throughout all the time of suffering, he's never left them alone. He's been with him through the entire process. Significance of the shepherd. Why is it significant that God keeps calling himself a shepherd? Check this out. Psalm 23, verses 1. I'm going to show you, read the whole psalm to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's my provider. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He gives me comfort. He gives me supply. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He says, look, he cleanses me. He restores me for the sake that I can live for him, that I can bring glory to his name. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. He says, even though where you are, the darkest place of your life, I've never left your side. I'm right alongside you. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He defends us. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. He desires to bless us. He, for, he provides, he, he desires to have work and to do a work in our lives and to not only bless us, but provide for us throughout all of it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's covenant is forever. Salvation is forever. Here we see the faithfulness of God. When we're unfaithful, God is faithful. Isaiah 53, 6. All, my sh all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even though you're unfaithful, even though you turn your backs, even though you live in sin, even though you embrace the world, even though you, you reject my son, and, you, and, you, and you, you, he's smitten, you push him away, you drive him away from you, and even though you won't accept him, yet because I love you, I will send him for you to bear the iniquity of us all faithfulness of God. Verse 8, I am come down to deliver them out of the land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and bring them out of the land, that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. All the sites. You're going to see them all. <laughs> not, only, not only is he going to get them out of Egypt, but what's also awesome about the fact that he's already prepared a place for them. It's already ready, right? Notice God is simply relaying his plans. That will be fulfilled. He's not saying, well, you know, if you'll choose to do this, it might work out. He's saying, look, this is going to happen. These things will be accomplished. Now in verse number nine, thou, thou, now therefore behold the cry of the children of now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel of, is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. I know everything has taken place. I've seen and witnessed it all. Nothing is hidden from God, not our suffering, 
not our experiences, not our triumphs, not our failures, not even our thoughts. Notice what Job says in 42.2. He says, I know that thou canst do everything, that you are absolutely sovereign, God, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. He says, there's nothing that happens in your life that I don't know what's taking place. There's not even a thought that crosses your mind, no matter how quiet and hidden it may be, that you think that no one else knows. I know your thoughts. And guess what? When you're broken and when the devil's beating you up, I care. And I'm walking with you every step of the way. No matter how dark it may seem, the light is just available. If nothing escapes God, then why does God allow suffering to take place? Why doesn't he step in time and time and time again? If he knows what's going to take place, why doesn't he step in immersively and go, you know what, I'm going to stop that? Hmm. This human experience is all about learning, right? It's all about us learning and developing and changing. God's trying to get us to trust in him. God is allowing life to mold us into who it is that we're supposed to become. Think about it. Are there some of us in this room that someone can tell us not to do something, and we're like, yeah, okay. But some of us just have to experience it for ourselves. Is anybody else like that besides me? <laughs> All right. A lot of us, right? You know, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, yeah. What? Well, you don't understand. I mean, my situation, I mean, I can't let it ain't a big deal, right? And we all look back on these places, these times we've made decisions, and we're like, wow, that was a mistake. I should have listened to my parents. We were just talking about that this morning. Somebody said, everybody, 19, mostly 19-year-olds think they know it all. But what's really cool is when they get to about 30 or they have kids, they're like, man, I don't know nothing, man. <laughs> Mom, Dad, you, you got any help? <laughs> right? All of a sudden, you become really, really teachable. But it's that unteachable moment because we believe we already know. But once life starts to beat you up a little bit and you start to get shaped and molded by life and experience, you start realizing, man, I don't know all that I thought I knew, right? So good is easy to take. When good happens, that's wonderful. But hard stuff, difficult stuff, that's hard, man. It's hard to accept bad things when they take place in our lives. Is it possible... That he wants us to learn how to forgive, maybe, those that the world would consider unforgivable. There's some of us that have been hurt by people. I'm talking about hurt at a level or at a point that is so horrible and so deep and so intimate. And God's saying, I want you to forgive them. Buddy, that's hard. That's hard, man. Some of it may have been when we were five years old and we're hanging on to that. But that right there is keeping us from being more like Christ. And he allows those things in our lives so that we can be shaped and molded. Is it possible that the Lord is trying to teach us to love the unlovable? We've all been around people that are a little bit tough to love, right? There may be an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, whoever it is, and you're like, oh, boy. Here they come. I know what's going to happen. God, give me grace. God, let me handle this right. But are we praying for that person daily? Are we saying, God, let me let the light of Christ touch their life and whatever's going on in their life. Instead of me recognizing and seeing what's wrong with them, why don't I see them through your eyes? Somebody who's hurting and in pain, and you know what they need? They need some love. And if they're going to feel it from anybody, they may as well need to see it from me. Why don't I take responsibility for, build responsibility for this? You tell me I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm supposed to love my enemy. You know what? I don't like this person. I don't, I don't want to be around this person. But I'm supposed to love them anyway. How are they going to experience who Christ is? And how will you be, become more like Christ unless you learn how to love the unlovable? Is it possible that he wants us to learn to be patient, kind, and understanding with people that try us on all of those levels? Right? Some people that just, oh, you know what I'm talking about? 
just get on your nerves. They know how to just do, 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 your button, whatever button that is. They're like ding, 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 ding. And you're like, why every time are we together? You know what I'm saying? You're just like, ah, you feel that strain. You know what I'm saying? And they're just like, ha, 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 ha. And you're like, showing patience and kindness and understanding to these people sometimes is difficult. But in doing so, guess what happens? We become a little bit more like Christ. Is it possible he's allowing the weight of life to get so great and so heavy that it weighs upon us so much that we find ourselves at a point where we can take no more? And we realize that we need him. Life is a molding process. And we don't learn so well in the good times. It's the hard times that shape us. It's the tough times that force us to be dependent upon God, that establish a relationship that's more rich and more pure, and he's doing greater things in our life. So God has a purpose to all things. We know that from Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. All things, the good and the bad. God has a plan. The children of Israel were in the land that God had promised them back in Genesis 12. Remember, before this took place, Joseph and his family, where did they live? Canaan. That's where they lived, right? So they were in the land that God's prepared for them now again. But they made a choice back then. Hey, you know what? There's a famine coming. We don't know how to take care of our family. Did we see them trusting in God or did we see them freaking out in fear? They got freaked out, right? And we know what we got to do. We're going to have to run to Egypt. God's prepared a way. Joseph, we're going to go that way. So they ran into sin. Remember what Egypt is a picture of? Picture of sin in the world. So they ran into that. So the decision that they made got them there. We can all look back in situations in our lives when you and I made decisions in our lives that consciously got us to a point in time where we were in a really hard spot. And we go, dang, man. We want to blame other people. We want to blame God. But realistically, if we go back to the process, there was a time point in time when we made some choices that got us where we are. And just look at the compassion of God, right? Check this out. Now, verse number 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, and thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He says, guess what? The thing I've been preparing you for, Moses, the thing that you thought you were going to do 40 years ago when you were going to step in and, and then you end up killing that man and, and you thought they were all going to rally behind you and they didn't, well, guess what? i got a plan. You're going to fulfill what I created you to be, which is to be a deliverer. Here's your big moment. This is what I created you for, Moses. Now, if we think that Moses' mindset 40 years ago was, man, they're going to follow me. Moses has lived kind of a meandering relaxed life for 40 years and he's kind of got accustomed to being a shepherd he likes just kind of milling around he's on the back side of the mountain he doesn't have a lot of responsibilities so we hear this big moment where he can suddenly fulfill what God created him to be and how does he respond in verse number 11 and Moses said unto him said unto God who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt he's like what are you, what are you talking about me what we've all been called to do something for the Lord and sometimes we go me what yeah, I want you to share your faith. Me? Share, share my, what? Show you. Talk? You want me to talk to people? I mean, I might be able to hand them a track, but it would be like, you know, like that, you know? <laughs> or, or hide it somewhere so they might find it later on and be like, you know, tuck it in there. They're not looking. Okay, I'm going to put it in this book here. Uh, right? I fulfilled my duty. Right? And God said, hey, sometimes I want you to step up. I want you to to, to do what I've called you to do. And it's sometimes a little bit scary. We can all understand this. His fear of Egypt and his doubt of himself don't even allow him to hear. Because remember, if we look back at verse 8, look back at verse 8, it says this. And he says, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land. Of that land. So who is it that's supposed to bring them out? God's going to bring them out. God's saying, look, I'm going to do this, right? So here is the plan dependent upon Moses. 
No, because God's already said that he's going to do this. But what's happening is he's giving, he's giving Moses an opportunity to come alongside what he's going to do and say, look, you know what, son? Here's an opportunity. I created you for a purpose that's going to bring glory to my name. And if you will surrender yourself to it, you're going to see me do something amazing through you. It's not through you. It's through your submittal to me. The Lord is simply offering Moses an opportunity to fulfill his purpose and bring glory to his name. Understand, Moses, we understanding Moses' fear, we see God compassionately reassure him. Look at this next verse, number 12. And he said, certainly, I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. Check this, look at this word right here. When. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Look at the way he talks about it. He's saying, look, this is a foregone conclusion. When you bring them out, this is going to be an assurance to you. He says, and ye shall serve me. Not you might serve me, you could serve me. He says, ye shall, you will do this. And, and so check this out. Moses said unto him, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? He says, Look, I don't even know what to call you. I mean, I'm this, I don't know what's going on here. And Moses says, and God says this, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Not only this is an introduction, but it's a proclamation. Look what he's saying here. The point of the fact is he's saying, you know what? God is eternal. God is sovereign. He says, I have been and I have always will be. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, from ever, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is eternal. He's saying, look, I am that I am. Do you realize who it is you're speaking to, Moses? Don't be afraid. I am, a, I am as a divine title that Jesus took for upon himself, giving us a direct correlation between him and the burning bush. Remember in John 8, 58, right? This, he said this, Jesus saith unto them, Verily, 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 I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the same verbiage in John 8, 24, and on John 8, 28, and John 13, 9, and in John 18, 6. Whenever Judas came to him, remember in John 18, 6, when Judas came to him, and he says, Whom is that that thou, thou seek? And he said, We seek Jesus. And he says, I am he. And when he says, I am, what do they do? Fall backwards. 300, 400 soldiers lay on their backs. Boom! At the word, I am he. I am. It's a proclamation of who he is. A picture of Christ. And God said, moreover, additionally, to, to Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, uh, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial in all generations. Explain that I am the God of their forefathers, that I am the one true God, the one that they've, they're Hebrews, and this I am the Hebrew God. In order to establish their relationship, there must first be reverence. Reverence, reverence, reverence. Moses must at this time not only teach it, but he's also got to reflect it. And he says here, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them. Notice he gives them a script. He tells them exactly what to say. Say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. So God tells him specifically what he must say. He's saying, look, you're not alone. And that's something we have to be conscious of, the fact that we are not alone, man. It's like that old song, no, never alone, no, never alone. A promise never to leave thee, never to leave thee alone. 
That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proclamation of who God is, man. The fact is that when you feel alone, it's not because God has left you. It's because you've isolated yourself from him. These Israelites feel isolated from God for 400 years, and they're going, where is he, where is he, where is he, where is he? And he goes, I'm right here. Why don't you call out to me? Because I'm ready to deliver you. I've already got it all planned out. I know exactly what's going to happen. In fact, I already know what's going to happen. If you'll just simply cry out, and it all starts with their cry, and then we hear when he says, Moses, Moses, that silence is broken. Deuteronomy 31.8, the same Moses that so many times we see fearful right now, look what he says in Deuteronomy 31.8. This is 40 years of life shaping Moses. And he says this, And the Lord he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. That's the same Moses right there that life is made into a man of faith Amen. instead of a man of fear. And the experience that you're going through, man, don't, don't be angry at God for it. Allow it to change you into who it is He wants you to be. Because you can become this person of faith. But it doesn't just happen because you want it. It happens because you experience it and you learn to trust God. And it is tough times that bring it. And Moses has got tough times ahead of him. Verse 17. And I have said, I will bring you out of, the, out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't it interesting? Check this out. The fact that God in this instance has got to use words to entice them. Now this, he's saying, not only does he say, look, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. Now you're under a burden. You're under bondage. I understand this. I know what you're going through and I know the pain that you feel and I'm going to lift you out of that. But he's actually got to sell it a little bit because I'm going to send you to a land of flowing with, with milk and honey. Just know that it's, it's going to be great, guys, because he knows the heart of the Israelites. They're stubborn. They're selfish. Guess what the Israelites are a picture of? The individual believer. And guess what we all struggle with? Selfishness. And we're stubborn and we want things the way we want them. Not the way necessarily God wants them for us. And he's trying to help them to understand. He's, he knows he's got to entice them somewhat. But at the same time, it's a matter of them learning to submit. And verse number 18. And they shall hearken unto thy voice. This time they're going to listen to you. Okay? And thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go. We beseech you three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He says, start with this little request. Just tell him you want three days to go out into the wilderness to pray. In verse number 19, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. So the Pharaoh is going to tell you no. We already know this is going to happen. But remember, who is Pharaoh a picture of? Satan, right? Satan himself. No matter how hard we may try, and no matter how many words we may use, we're never going to convince him to be merciful. It's not within him. Satan does not have mercy within him. He comes for destruction. He comes to kill, to steal, to kill, and destroy. We know this of him. We know that he's a liar. We know that he can appear as an angel of light. We know that he's all about deception. And he's all about luring people away through temptation to destruction. Right? We know that broad is the way to the destruction, and many shall go that way. But narrow is the way to salvation, and few shall find it. 
So destruction is, 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 is all around us. The world is filled with the satanic influence. It's, it's filled with anger. It's filled with, with bitterness and rage and frustration. Watch the news nowadays, man. There's so much strife in the world. You don't see people working to get along. I mean, people are, are standing directly against one another just for the purpose of being, uh, what's the word you would say, uh, to not get along, whatever. That's the word. To be, just to be difficult, right? Just to be difficult. And so the whole point is we see this division in our world. We don't see a place of unity. We don't see a place of love or compassion. We see a place of judgment and anger and frustration and rage. And these are the things that Satan's trying to bring into our world. Bottom line is he understands only one thing. He only understands one thing. And he only responds to one thing. Power. A greater power. He can never be reasoned with. No matter how much you may cry out, just have mercy. Just have mercy. You don't understand how low I am. You don't understand how broken I am. And he's like, oh, yes, I do. I know exactly how broken you are. And I'm going to pour it on, and I'm going to pour it on, and I'm going to pour it on, and I'm going to drive you into the ground and bring you to utter destruction, and I'm going to celebrate upon your tears. It's going to be fantastic. And when we don't turn to God, guess what happens? The way gets greater and greater and greater, and he never backs off. Never backs off. But there's a verse in James chapter 4, verse number 7, and it says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The same one that's on you so much that he's crushing you to the ground and trying to destroy you will run away from you in fear, not of you, but the one you serve. Because the key there is it says, submit yourself. This is where the stubbornness comes in. This is where the pride comes in. Because when we don't submit, we say, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to keep facing him. I'm going to let my will face his will. And I can hold out. If you're fighting an addiction, you're fighting something in your life, and you're trying to hold it off with your will, you'll do okay for a while. I've known people that have gone with drug addiction 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. They've held it off, held it off, held it off, held it off based upon their will. But one day when they find weakness, Satan never goes, ah, we're done with him. No, 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 no. He assigns demons specifically to bring destruction. And it's not until we submit to God that they will flee from us. The Bible says that the demons tremble in the presence of the Lord. They are fearful of him. They're not fearful of us. As defiantly as you stand, I will not. And he just goes, <laughs> oh, this will be rich. Oh, this is going to go great. Boys, just wait for the show. It's going to be awesome because the day is going to come and we're going to celebrate upon their destruction and it's going to be fantastic. Let's just wait for it. And all we have to do is submit ourselves to God. First Samuel 17, 45, David faces off against Goliath. It says, Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, that thou hast defiled. Let's actually, I'm going to read you 46 as well. Uh, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the hosts of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Yes. Amen. Amen. 
David's not depending upon his strength or his courage. He's fully, 100% depending upon God saying, look, it ain't in me that this is going to happen, but my God, my God will fight for me. Psalm 28, 7 says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him. Trust in Him, not myself. I trust in Him. And I am helped, therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth. And with my song will I praise Him. Even in my darkness, I can praise Him knowing that God will not let me down. And what I'm going through, I'm going through for a purpose. And he's trying to help me and shape me and change me and help me to grow and learn to depend upon him. And I pray that I can fulfill what God's called me to be. Moses right now is defiant in God. He's saying, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. He's got fears. Guess what? You'll have fear. That's okay. But submitting to God allows those fears to sort of slip away. The more you submit to God, the less fearful you become. And that's true in every aspect of your life. If you're afraid of your future, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Guess what? God will walk you to your future. He has a purpose for everything. And he says in verse number 20, And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. He will not listen to your words, Moses. Just know when you go, he's not going to listen. But by my power, he will listen. And he will see the hand of God. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. You're not going to leave empty-handed when you leave Egypt. Verse 22. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Those very people that mistreated you are going to bless you as you walk out the doors. Only through the power of God can bondage and oppression be transformed into freedom and empowerment. Think about that. Bondage and oppression that we feel today, whatever it is, can become freedom and empowerment. Your very bondage, once it's broken, empowers you then to help other people to realize that God can do miraculous things. The reason why many times we go through hard times is because once God brings us through them and you've got a story and a testimony to tell what God can do, whoo, you give hope to people who are hopeless. You give hope to people that are hopeless and the people, the world is full of hopeless people. People that don't know where to turn. Suicide rates are on the, on the rise, man. Because people go, I don't have any other options. Women show up at the abortion clinic and they show up there or they show up there and they, they, because they go, I don't think I have any of their options. And Satan lies to them and tells them that they don't. But he's a liar because God always gives options. He's there with love and grace and forgiveness. And no matter how badly we've messed up and how badly we've turned from God, he says, hey, I'm ready to forgive you. I have something for you that's beautiful. And if you'll let me strip away all this garbage and throw it away. And let me accept my forgiveness and accept my love. Then when the, the veil falls away and you see this life through new eyes, you'll go from being hopeless to hopeful. And you will see joy and you'll see opportunity. And you'll see what looked like bondage before. Now it becomes empowerment to do something for my name. How amazing is God? The power of transformation is miraculous and it's available to us all. If there's been silence between you and God, you might be a Christian and there's silence between you and God. Sin can cause silence to fall between you and God. It can absolutely. Now, he can call you. He's calling you through the Spirit. But you may not be hearing from you. You can read the Word of God and hear nothing. 
You can go, Mom, I'm in my Bible every day. I mean, I'm reading, man. I mean, I read this, you know. It's like Yami and I were talking one day, and she, was, she said, Pastor, what should I read? I was like, read the book of James. An hour later, she's like, done, what's next? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this isn't a speed reading course. Finish, roll on, right? What you want to do is let the Lord speak to you. You can read it, or you can absorb it, man. If you let it speak to you, buddy, it will change your whole world. But if you just read it, they just become words. If you let it change you, let it speak to you, let it empower you to become who God has been calling you to be. It's time that that silence be broken. And you notice that it starts with the children of Israel. It doesn't start with God. It starts with us. Because in order for God to work, we must submit ourselves to him. The silence is broken from us. And once we break the silence, the communication begins, and buddy... God will pour it on you, and the more you want to hear, the more he'll tell you, and the more he'll feed you, and the more he'll help you grow. And the more desperately you seek him, the more you will find him. And the more you find, the more you learn, the more you grow, the more empowered you become. And all of a sudden, this person who was broken, who had no future, who had no, no nothing going in their life, once they get saved and they fall in love with God and they seek him, he builds them into this warrior for Christ who goes out and changes the world. They're the same person. The only difference is the influence of God. And if we'll submit ourselves to him, he can do great things. The wonderful thing is, you know what? The outcome is already determined. Whenever he's talking to Moses, he says, when? When you deliver them. Guess what? God already has a solution. God already has a relationship that he wants to establish with you. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's already determined. Anyone who calls out to him by faith, they shall be saved. Amen. Determined already. That's a promise from God. We talk about claiming the promises of God. The very first one you claim as a Christian is that promise. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've called upon him and he's and he saved you, praise the Lord. Embrace him today. Get sin out of your life today. Righteousness. Righteousness, that means to take care of the things of the world, the things that have, that have polluted us and getting rid of them. And as we do that, we become clearer and stronger and we walk with God more clearly. And his voice resonates in our hearts and guides our steps. It's incredible. But this is a call that God's making. He wants to work in us, but we need to be, be the ones that break the silence. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't have a relationship with God. You're online wherever you are. Understand, the silence is broken because you call out to God with your heart. It says, seek him with your whole heart. And if today you say, look, I'm not, I'm not a child of God. I don't know. Because you can have faith in God. Wonderful. But faith isn't what it means. It's a matter of trusting Christ as your Savior, understanding that he is the key. Because there's people who say, I believe in God. And it's wonderful to believe in God. But the devil believes in God. The demons that tremble in the presence of God, they don't doubt that he's real. They know that he's real. But they're not saved. Salvation is a matter of submitting ourselves to God, understanding that we're the problem, that he's the solution, and allowing him to truly change us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you, Lord, for your honesty and your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the, of the spirit, God, as you work in our hearts. Lord, help us to be submitted to you, Lord, as we all face the same enemy. And Lord, he wants to bring destruction, but God, we know that he responds to power, not our power, not our cunning, not our wisdom, but Lord, the power of God. We ask you, Father God, to work in us. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you and help us, Lord, uh, to, to see him uh, run in fear 
as we submit to you. And Lord, for those today that might be here and they say they don't know you, they might have a religious experience. They might know that they, they believe that, that God is real. They might uh, read the Bible even, but they don't have that personal relationship with God, that eternal life that we talk about that starts with knowing you. God, I pray that right now, if there be one in the service today that does not know you, Lord, that you will speak to their heart even now. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what, bottom line, I do not have that relationship you're talking about. I want to know God. I do. I want to have a relationship with Him. I want to walk with God. I want to feel His presence. I want to know His love. I want to have the confidence that when I walk away, when I step out of this life, that I will open my eyes in the glory of heaven. I want to know that for sure and not have a doubt. The Bible says that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And this life is in His Son. If you're here today and you have never truly received Christ, you may have had a religious experience, but you've never truly received Him. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. And this doesn't take anything but between you and God. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's a prayer that you make in your own heart, quietly to Him. He knows your thoughts. Nothing's hidden from Him. And if you want to receive Him, I'm going to give you that chance to do it right now. With your whole heart, and understanding it's not the words, it's the intention of your heart. Repeat after me in your heart. Speak to God. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong. For those that I've hurt, the times that I know I've hurt you, please forgive me. I'm asking you to pay the price for my sins, to apply your blood to my sin debt. I believe you have the power to save me, and I'm asking you to do it now. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for one day giving me a home in heaven. I will see you on their day, one day there. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks.